that shame, that embarrassment of my family of origin, it became this thing I couldn't control, right? I can't control if my parents know English. I can't control if they're assimilated into this country, but I could control food. And that's what I did. Shame is this prison, a room that you sort of stay in because it's so comfortable, even thought it's so horrible that you don't know how to free yourself. Goodbye diets and hello sustainable health. I'm Elise, dietitian and nutritionist based in the Silicon Valley. I believe that we all deserve an effortless relationship with food without obsession. I am so excited to have on here with me today, Noor Pina. I think you guys are going to love her. Noor Pina is a mental health therapist turned transformative mindset coach. She helps women heal from inner child wounds, shame, and create confidence for self-passion. She migrated from Pakistan to the U.S. and is passionate about helping you unblock the barriers to your dreams and take away the shame that holds you back. I first connected with Noor years ago when we were both starting up our private practices and developing confidence around that, and now here we are. What really struck me about your work was what you do around shame, because I think it's such at the heart of people's struggles and at, at the root of so mm-hmm. many internal turmoil, especially for my patients. I think a lot of the shame is around food and body, but I know the sh- there's shame in other places too that yeah. might have started off there and then transmuted itself into food and body at one point. Oh, Absolutely. So in your, in your experience, why don't we kind of even take a step back and talk about what shame even is and sure. more specifically in your situation, where do you see shame most? So shame for me, and of course, this is like my own experience, but also taking in the knowledge that I've learned a lot through Bernie Brown and other educators as well. Shame is this prison a room that you sort of stay in because it's so comfortable, even thought it's so horrible that you don't know how to free yourself. Because if it's you telling yourself that no one can understand what you're going through, no one is going to be able to provide you that compassion, that empathy, and then people are going to judge you for what you're going through. So you rather put on this pretend face, whatever that may be for you, and just let all that almost like poisonous stuff kind of filter through your veins and kind of block you out from reaching out and being vulnerable and connecting with people. So that's (laughs) in a sentence or two, that's what shame is. (laughs) I love that analogy because it's like you, you close the door and you locked it. And Mm -hmm. now you don't know where to go and you're just stuck in it by yourself. And it Mm -hmm. feels more and more lonely. Yeah, no, absolutely. The reason I bring this up is because this this topic is so close to home for me personally. And you might have experience with this too, but I'll just disclose that I remember my first memories of shame were around being Asian in a mostly white, you know, neighborhood. And my parents not knowing the language, they didn't know how to punch in their phone number at the cash register at the grocery store. So me as an eight-year-old had to do that. And everyone was like, why is that kid doing the thing for their parents? So shame started off really small for me and it just grew with different things over time. And it's like all of these things have stacked and I've just locked myself in this room with it. (laughs) Yeah. 
I mean, that's such a powerful memory that's ingrained within us, right? Uh, especially you, like it, since it's your memory. But those shame memories have like a sensory uh, attachment to it as well. I'm sure you can remember that day pretty clearly, you know, the sights and the sounds and what you might have been wearing or what your parents might have been wearing, as well as that overwhelming feeling. And perhaps you weren't able to identify it as shame when you were younger, you know, but now that you look back at it, you're like, ah, oh, that's what it was, you know. And I have I have a very similar story for as you as well. Um, my mom was in the grocery store. My mom arrived from Pakistan, I believe when she was 20 years old with four kids, did not speak a word of English, you know, single mom. My dad had walked out and we're at the grocery store and apparently we had gotten food stamps and back in the day, it wasn't a credit card, you know, it was those paper things. And my mom, you know, didn't speak English. I didn't really know English. I was like five, give or take four or five like that. And I just remember the people behind the behind us in the line, just staring and making fun of my mom because we were wearing our cultural clothing that would make us clearly stand out in public. And then we were wearing a hijab and my mom didn't know English. And so she's trying to figure out how to use this food stamp and it's folded. And, and I just remember like, oh my God, this doesn't feel right. Like I don't belong, you know? And later on, as I learned about shame as well, it was like, oh, that that's the feeling of shame. Like I was embarrassed by my mom. I was ashamed by my mom because she didn't know how to speak English. She couldn't fit in. And therefore I was another target as well for those people's comments. And I have more compassion for my mom way now than I did when I was that young child, you know, who didn't know any better. It's, it's really interesting how, yeah, we, we are shaped by these memories. And for us, it's so similar being child of immigrants. Um, and I think in a lot of ways, this shame kind of spirals for some people where as a young kid, we don't know how to handle this. We barely have the vocabulary to know what it is. Yeah. And as time went on for me, and maybe my audience can relate to this, like that shame, that embarrassment of my family of origin, it became this thing I couldn't control, right? I can't control if my parents know English. I can't control if they're assimilated into this country, but I could control food. And that's what I did. That lack of control and feeling shame around my family, I put all of that energy into food and body. And that's yeah. when my relationship with food and body took a turn. But I think as I look at it from an adult lens, it's like, oh, because I couldn't handle all these big emotions and all of this embarrassment. So I only yeah. focused it on a very narrow little thing that I could control. Do you see that in your work working with people? Oh, absolutely. It doesn't matter what the diagnosis is or whether you're just coming in because you're having, you know, life problems come up. It doesn't matter. That is usually among like maybe the top five. Like, I feel like control is one of those things because without it, you know, we don't know where we're going in and out. And we can focus on this one thing in our life, you know, um, for some people it's food, some, for some people it's exercise, some people develop other unfortunate 
unhealthy uh, habits that in that moment feel really healthy to us because they're providing us some way to cope with the situation that we are in, right? And in dialectical behavioral therapy, we often say that it doesn't matter if it's a bad coping skill or a good coping skill. The thing you're engaging in is giving you some sort of relief and there's wisdom in what you're doing. Now we just have to look at what you've been doing and bring critical awareness to it and then you know, rewrap it and re reframe your mind and change your behaviors. But I just want to put it out there. Let's normalize those behaviors, whether healthy or not, because in that moment, what you're essentially trying to do for yourself is take care of yourself in that moment, the best way that you know in that moment. I think it's such a special thing when we can take a really gentle, kind look at the things that we're doing. Maybe it's not on a whole the most helpful thing to be doing, but if we can just kind of say, wow, this is the one thing I can do, I know how to do to take care of myself, it puts a a nice positive spin on it. And I almost wonder with shame, if we were to go back to that, what do you think is the role, the positive role of shame in any of our lives? So... (laughs) That's a hard question. I don't know if there's anything positive about it. And I know that if I was to ask my clients that question, they probably would say the same thing. I think if we look at it back in, if we look back at our upbringing, our trauma and whatever else we've gone through and we look at it now in retrospective, I think for me personally, I think shame played a role in the way I thought, acted, and behaved, whether good or bad, right? It helped define who I was. And then I learned from that, that I needed to be more vulnerable. I needed to be more open-hearted, more heart-aligned. I needed to be compassionate and empathetic towards myself first, and then to others. And shame never allowed me to do that. It never really allowed me to connect vulnerably, genuinely, authentically with people because it held me back in fear and in judgment so much. So if we are able to recognize what the language of shame is, that's the positive aspect and being able to say, ah, that's what it is. Now I can do this. Yeah. I love how, um, right. If you, if you have the awareness to know that it's there for a reason and kind of go about it, knowing it's there, I do wonder if the role of shame is that initial response of like, oh, I'm different or like, oh, this is not okay. And while it's not the most constructive, maybe first response, it's the only response that some of us know how to feel. And it's almost probably a protective mechanism of like, oh, I'm different. Maybe I can hide out a little bit. And when I'm ready, I can re-engage again. But right now, my body is not equipped to to handle this. Oh, yeah. I definitely agree with you. I think it's an almost an automatic response. It's a shield we come up with to protect ourselves, right, from the fear of rejection, of what others might say to us or do to us, right? And I think with anything, our first response is that initial gut reaction. 
right? And then we have to go into the process and say like, okay, what is it that's actually triggering me right now? You know, and kind of peel back the onion layers as I like to call them, right? But I agree, um, hearing you and now thinking about the question, yes, I, I think the initial response is to be protective of ourselves and, and our energy, whether we recognize it or not. It's, yeah, it's a really interesting concept. I think as humans, there were, we're so layered. There's so many things happening at all times. And that yeah. is, really, we're so complex sometimes. It's, it's really a good and bad thing. And then I'm thinking about also, probably my audience is curious about how this ties back to food and body again. Yeah. And it's this, it's this layered thing again, where, you know, we go into wanting to change our bodies and tinker with things and control food and control our bodies. And at one point it, it takes a turn and we become almost ashamed of it when it becomes too controlling or too obsessive. So mm-hmm. what started off as a thing where we want to be accepted by more people. So we engage in these behaviors. It takes a turn into becoming this shameful thing of like, oh, I can't eat in front of others. Oh, I have to you know, do it this way. And I don't want other people to know. It's this weird turn of events. <laughs> yeah, no, I agree with you. I think that with relationship with food and just our body appearance, right? Shame plays a big role. And one of the things we often have to ask ourselves that I learned through my journey, I have, and I'm recovering from body body dysmorphia, right? And mine developed because of the trauma that I had. And it was related again, back to what can I control? It's the food in my life because I didn't have any other choice. So the thing that comes back with our, again, with eating and our body image is who's benefiting from it all, right? And a lot of it is societal norms. And there's, you know, whether you're plus size or, you know, a size four or whatever, society constantly tells us that we need to be look and behave in a certain way. And the beauty industry is geared towards that, especially. So they feed off of our insecurities all the time. And there's a lot of good companies out there that are trying to make the change. I'm not gonna say it's all terrible, you know? And there's a lot of good role models out there, but with food, it's easier to get into because it allows us to numb our pain and our feelings and getting your favorite mac and cheese because it's comfort food, right? It starts off as a really small thing. And then it's like, oh, and we make this cognitive and behavioral connection that when I am sad, if I eat that bowl of mac and cheese, it comforts me and I don't have to think about my pain. Mm -hmm. That pairing that happens when we eat and the relief of that pain, we then think we are being conditioned, right? And, and we are creating that environment um, within us because of the outer environment that is causing that chaos to happen. Uh, what a wild thing to hear such similarities in our stories and yeah. how 
how things really can channel into such simple behaviors, whether it's with food or other things. But yeah, as a kid, that's really the only thing that we can do. Yeah. (laughs) Was there a point in your, you know, childhood or adulthood where you, you felt like, wow, finally I feel like home. Like, I feel like I'm part of this. I always feel out of place in some manner, shape or form, but I am more home in my body now than I've have been in my past. There's a lot more gratitude, a lot more abundance, a lot more thankfulness, you know, in regards to what my body did for me and how it carried for me. And I put it through a lot and it's still here. I mean, in pieces, hell of it, but it's here and it's working, you know, and I'm thankful for that. This reminds me of something I learned in therapy years ago, where my therapist used to say, your your home, whether it's your body home or your physical home, says a lot about how comfortable you are in general. Mm-hmm. And that really sticks to me because if you're uncomfortable in your body, it's probably not very easy for you to be comfortable in other situations. And if you're home and your body, like all of the things around you are cozy and comfortable, it's probably a good sign that you're, you're onto something. <laughs> yeah, no, I agree. I think self-love and self-acceptance in all situations is really important. And I'm, and, and by saying that in no way am I saying, don't take accountability and responsibility for your actions. If you did something wrong or you messed up, own up and amend that relationship, right? And if you can't amend it, at least own up and see what your behavior or your role was and do better next time, right? But that self-care and that self-love and that internal dialogue that you have with yourself is one of the best ways to like beat that shame out of you, you know? Mm-hmm. And I'm just thinking back to all the things that you've accomplished over your years professionally and probably personally and in all of these ways. I'm wondering, you know, what are you most proud of and what were some of the things that you had to tell yourself to get to all of those places and to those stages in your life? What am I most proud of? Huh. Okay. Looking back now, I'm really proud of my TEDx talk. I wasn't in that moment because I was always like, oh my God, is this actually happening? It's too good to be true. Is it real? And then it, bam, it hit me like, wait, no, I've got this message. And it's when I was working with Kate, one of the things she often talked about is that your services are needed out in the world. You need to share your story. And it's not about you. It's about the people and how you can change their lives. And those are some of the things I often had to say to myself that this is not about me. And if in it, if a insecurity came up, I dealt with it. If a thought came up, I gave lots of pep talks, you know, to myself. And it often sounds like, hey, this is really, really hard and it really fucking sucks. And however, at the same time, you've gone through so much worse and you're still here today breathing. So if you could get through that nonsense, you can definitely get through what you're going through now. 
right? And reminding myself of like daily things that I have to deal with that cause me to be impatient and cause me to get annoyed and frustrated, not just with myself, but the situation. And then I still get up and resolve it. And even though I may mentally break down and beat myself up, I allow that for a few moments. And then I say, okay, now that the talk and the pity party is done and woe is me is done, how can we practice gratitude and abundance and then move on to what we need to do? And does that mean I have to ask somebody for help? Because I know shame tells me don't ask people for help. Mm -hmm. So who can I reach out and ask for help, right? And and in asking for help, I, this is one thing I had to learn and constantly still working on is that asking for help does not mean that you're weak and that you're not independent. You are independent and you are strong, but asking for help elevates those things even further, right? Mm-hmm. So yeah, so I'm really proud of that. I'm really proud of my own self journey and growth. It, it's still a healing process and I don't, I, I think when I was younger, I thought like, by, by this time in my life, I'll be healed. I'll have all this stuff, right? And that did not happen. And instead, now I look at it and I say, it's a journey. There's no end destination. You're not going to arrive at some place and be like, oh, this is it, right? And one of the metaphors I like to tell myself is, remember that hike you had to do in Overlook Mountain and it was just a straight incline and I forgot my inhaler. So I had to stop every five to 10 minutes to calm my breathing and put my hand over my chest. And by the time, like people kept passing me. So by the time I got to the top, the people that had like, that had passed me were already coming down and looking at me. I was like, okay, I'm being judged. It's okay. It's okay. It's okay. You're doing the best that you can in this moment by doing and taking care of yourself. And that trip worth up the mountain was worth it. It was totally worth it. However, I still needed to go down. And the process of now talking to myself going down was different than me talking to myself when I was going up. And I was reminding myself like how grateful I was of that journey and how I can do it again and again and again, right? So that process of like that healing, like it's never just one destination. You get to enjoy it. You get to be in the moment and please appreciate that hike just taught me so much, like appreciate every moment that you get to stop and rest. And it's the little things that get you to that bigger thing, right? And so being able to do that within my journey and become more gracious and more kind towards myself and still allow me to have bad days, that it's okay to have good and bad, like two things can be true at the same time. Mm-hmm. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is how you get shit done. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, really, I think what 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 I'm hearing from you is like, you know, talking yourself out of all of these, you know, just uncomfortable emotions and then appreciating them, showing yourself kindness and taking action. That is a whole story arc in and of itself that you do on a daily basis, moment by moment. (laughs) 
But I think that's exactly what we need in all of our lives, right? Where I was in Bali and I climbed this mountain, this volcanic mountain in wow. at like 2 a.m. because we were trying to catch the sunrise. Yeah. <laughs> and I was feeling nauseous on the way up because it was just like incline all like mm-hmm. all morning long on an empty stomach. And I was like, this is not for me. <laughs> this is not for me at all. I need to go back down. Yeah. But no, I, I completely get the things that you have to, to say to yourself. And also, you know, I just came from Bali on vacation and that was I in want to hear of all about that later. <laughs> oh my gosh. It was absolutely what a wild ride because I had a breathwork session and As I was doing breath work, I remember the guide, you know, telling us every few minutes, you know, release the things that are holding you back, release the things that no longer serve you and that you're ashamed of. Accept yourself, say that I love you, say that I'm worthy as I am. Like all of these very powerful statements as we're breathing so intensely, like I can't feel my hands or my face. It was just like releasing so much energy that I didn't need. And it's like, those are the moments where it's like, yeah, like what am I doing with my life? Why am I holding on to shame? Or why am I holding on to all of this resentment and guilt and judgment about myself and others in my life that no longer, like they don't serve me at all. None of this actually, the shame that doesn't serve me, the guilt that doesn't do anything. None of this does anything positive. That was definitely a trip. And I was reading the untethered soul on this trip. I had my life flash before my eyes as I was reading this book, because it was really telling me how to think about my life. You know, really all the thoughts and emotions that come through me every day, they're not things I have to latch onto and feel so intensely or hold on to so so much like they you can just let it pass it really is the thing that you can just let go there's nothing that tells you you have to feel this frustration or this anger or this guilt that you have to judge this thing or you have to do that like you can just let it go <laughs> absolutely I think one of the lessons I'm learning is that which dbt really did teach me and I hated it for it when I read it it was that life is unfair right? That's just a fact. And not much we can do about it. What we can choose to do about it is how we engage with the emotional response to that situation, right? That's within our control and our agency. I can't do anything about who caused my trauma or why they caused it. But what I can do about it is the healing aspect. At some point in your life, you have to own that healing process and say like, okay, enough is enough. I need to take care of me and I need to take that responsibility of healing. No one else is going to do it for me, but me. And I think that was really powerful for me that like, I didn't have to choose the pain. Mm. When was the moment that you realized that? (sighs) I, I, There are many moments, I think, that reaffirm that, but I think the first moment when I was in therapy and I had this amazing, amazing therapist for, you know, the past 10 years, and he was talking to me about how I just needed to snap out of it and own up what I needed to do for me. And I was talking about this really terrible situation. And it wasn't that I was in this mind state of like, oh, I'm the victim, woe is me. But I kept talking about like how trauma, it feels like it's just the gift that keeps on giving. 
<laughs> you know, and I have to constantly heal from it. And it brings up all these layers within me. And how, how, why do I have to confront this all the time? Why can't it just be this one shot? And then that's it. Like, and I deal with it. Right. But it's not because it's so ingrained in us. It triggers so many different things. And he said to me, you know, in what DBT he just said, life is not fair. And I wish I could do the healing for you, but I can't you have, you have to do it. And I was like, and it just hit me. And I was like, oh my gosh, like as much as like my therapist can teach me the skills, if I don't observe and practice those skills and be in the trenches, there's nothing he can do that will make me motivated. It is internally me that has to do the work. And now I see myself when I do therapy or I do coaching and I often say to people is that I'm not here to fix you. I do not have a magic wand, but what I do have is the ability to guide you. You get to make those decisions in terms of what you want to do. You're the driver in this relationship. I'm just the guide and the cheerlead with some tough love, but I'm here and I'm, and I'm not going away because I'm not abandoning you right and that's what my therapist taught me he wasn't abandoning me and if he wasn't going to abandon me and and in realizing that that my spirituality and my faith was also not abandoning me and not judging me then who was I to be like if the higher being is not judging me and is forgiving who was I do like be like no I'm not I'm too good for that I, I don't want it right Oh, I think you pointed out something so important, which is I think sometimes the moments that I love the most about therapy in my own sessions is when I say something that was so shameful Mm -hmm. for the first time to my therapist and my therapist just kind of stays there neutral and Mm -hmm. is just taking it in, no judgment. Mm -hmm. And I think those are the most powerful moments because yeah, they're not judging me. No one is judging me, but myself, I'm the one holding on to the embarrassment why am I doing this? <laughs> yeah, no, I agree with you. You're absolutely right. Yeah. <laughs> and I, I think a lot of the times we ourselves hold ourselves back from doing whatever it is that we want to do. And in my book or in that yeah. book, Untethered Soul, it said, you know, you're okay when you decide you're okay. Nothing is going to heal you. It, it's really just if you think you're okay, you're okay. There's nothing wrong with you. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. And in your work, I know that you're more focused on helping people transform and kind of get to that best version of themselves that they want to be. What do you see the most? What stands out to you? A lot of people come in for relationship issues, you know, life issues in general, and that covers like family, work, spirituality, um, social, you know, economic emotional, physical, mental realms, like all those nuanced things, people come in for many, many different things. And there's just this underlining shame that's wraps around it. And they don't even know that it's shame, you know? And so in the work that I do, what I often see with people is that in the beginning, they're really inconsistent because they feel like they're not worthy of being healed. And being worthy of 
whatever they want to manifest right within themselves um, outside themselves as well and as time progresses to see them say in their day-to-day being like, you know what, I was so proud of me because I put a boundary in place or you would be so proud of me because they'll come and they'll be like, oh, I remember what you said and I see an image of you or I hear your voice, you know? And I said, you know, one of these days that voice of mine is going to just become your voice. And when they when that switch happens for them, when it becomes their voice, it's the most wonderful thing because they are now taking what they've learned and incorporating it into their own words. One of the things that we work on is gratitude. I ask all my patients, clients to get a little notebook and write down three things every day that they're grateful for, whether it was the sun being out, someone held the door, or they did something that they were really proud of. It doesn't matter from something small to big, it does not matter. And and create a ritual around it. So in the evening, you can do it in the morning. I said, I don't care how you do it, but create that on your schedule, create that time. If it's not on the schedule, it does not get done. Mm. And it does not exist because our mind is like, oh, I'll get to it. And then we forget. But if that reminder pops up, oh, okay, I got to do that now. And when they start seeing the work of the gratitude within 30 days, they're like, damn, okay, mm-hmm. I got this. And I'm like, you have this. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. So yeah, those are the two things that were coming up for me. I think those are such special moments and the level of practicality, the tools that you give your patients, I'm sure are, they go so far for all of them. And I, I don't know about you, for me personally, I don't see very many, um, people, child of immigrants or first gen, my patient population is not as diverse right now, Mm -hmm. but I think for you, I imagine it's probably a little bit different. Yeah. You mentioned the word self-worth as a concept, and I just think self-worth, especially for maybe immigrants or people of color, it, it takes on a different color, a different lens than someone who might be more con- in the conventional population. I wonder what you think about that. Oh, I definitely agree. I think shame in itself is universal when I want to say that but how it's universal and how it plays out in different people's religion, faith, culture, upbringing, that's what makes it unique to them, Mm -hmm. right? And so especially for someone who's BIPOC, who's an immigrant, you know, a minority, a female, you know, any of those things, shame plays such a critical role in our ideology of who we are. Because one, you have the cultural aspect and maybe perhaps even the religious factor. And sometimes those two are so enmeshed that you can't separate um, them. That like family becomes the top thing for anything. And in my household, I could not do anything without thinking how is this going to impact not just my sisters and my immediate family, but how is it going to impact the future of my cousins, mm-hmm. right? And like went down the list, so I can't do this because it will reflect, 
poorly on not just me, but my family, and we might get blacklisted, but also on the potential of what my cousins might be able to do down the road. Mm. And just that one, just that thought alone is so heavy that like, I wouldn't want to do anything because I was like, this is too much for me. And so in that sense, I think our upbringing and our culture, and then and then it's down to the day-to-day experience that you have within your family and your in, in, in your own environment, right? Like, were you taught the tools to combat shame? Were you taught what self-care was? Or were you taught that like, you are being selfish by taking care of you? Mm. You need to take care of family first. You need to take care of this person first. And so you became an adult as a young child and didn't get to live your childhood. And so when you had freedom, you acted like a kid. And that was not healthy, like as an adult, right? So that inner child, how it talks to us and how it relates to shame plays such a role because, you know, people with more diverse backgrounds often have less resources to get the help because there's also a stigma in getting the help, Mm. right? And so you can't even talk about it to your parents or even alone, say it out loud to yourself. So how can you go ask someone for that help, right? And that is just crippling right there. If you don't get, if you don't take anything else into consideration, the fact that you don't have resources and that you can't even ask for help because it's so stigmatizing, that just sets you up for failure your whole life. Mm-hmm. And from that little thought that's reinforced, like, I just need to be good so that I'm not a burden. I just need to be quiet so that I'm not seen. My voice needs to be silenced because if I am advocating for myself, it means I'm being rebellious and I'm going against my family and my cultural values and so forth and so forth. And then they just each little thought that you have becomes more distorted and more distorted to a narrative that has been distorted. So you're trying to fit, and I'm so bad with English idioms, but I think it's, you're trying to fit a square peg into a circle, Mm -hmm. right? And you're just shoving and shoving and shoving, but causing more agony within yourself. Oh my gosh. And with that being said, I I know that there are probably people out there who are resonating with every word that you're saying and probably have never thought about therapy with a therapist that has such a colored lens on culture and life and shame. And so where can people find you? Like, what are you working on? What, where can people connect? Sure. I am on TikTok um, and it's called imperfectly acceptable. So I make a lot of inspirational um, little videos and things like that. And I'm also heavy on Instagram and you can find me at nor, I believe it's a dash and then pinna. You can find me on my Facebook group, which I've become more active in, is called Resilient Mindset. Uh, The things I'm currently working on is finishing up my poetry book, um, going down the self-publishing route, And I'm working on settling it into California because I just recently moved and expanding my practice here and just connecting 
but I am looking to work on retreats. Like I really want to do retreats in nature and hiking and just really work on mindset and attitude while we, while we're hiking in nature and connecting with our spirituality. So I love that. So go hit Nora up and go connect with her. I think she's, you're such a lovely soul, Nora. And I hope everyone got so much out of today's episode and I will definitely be in touch with you. So until next time, I will see you all next week.